The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's freeze week in London, yet there's no big art fair at its heart. Can galleries create the usual excitement and is anyone still buying? There's no Freeze London or Freeze Masters, but it's still officially Freeze Week in London, with exhibitions and events being staged across the city and the now customary online viewing rooms and digital sales platforms. We talked to Louisa Buck about the art around town and to Melanie Gerlis about how the market's faring without the fairs. Later, Linda Jablonski talks to Theaster Gates about his shows in London and New York. Before all that, the art newspapers launched a new three-part online live event series which began this week called New Models for New Times, Rethinking the Art Market in a Changing World. The second event in the series, Breaking Boundaries, Local is the New Global, is on the 15th of October and you can register for this and other online events at theartnewspaper.com live. Now, as ever, a wealth of shows has opened across London for Freeze Week and our contemporary art correspondent, Louisa Buck, has been out and about seeing them. I spoke to her about some of her highlights. Louisa, before we start talking about individual shows, I just wanted to get a sense of the mood while you're out and about, because obviously this is normally a time of year when there's manic energy and millions of people from all over the world descend on London. But what's the mood among the galleries and museums that you're visiting? I think it's very up and down, to be quite honest. I mean, what's quite interesting, of course, you haven't got the international crowds coming in. There are not throngs of people. There is no, I mean, the champagne sales are zero. (laughs) There's there's no socialising. So when you go and look at a show, the atmosphere is much more contemplative. People are actually looking at the work. They're talking about the work. There's a sort of rush to kind of, you know, embrace people or say hello and then shrinking back again as one realises that one has to observe social distancing. Um, in the commercial galleries, it varies a lot from quite a sort of casual attitude to really quite a strict one where your temperature is taken as you walk in. So it's mixed, but it is cautious. It is sedate. Um, it isn't frenetically social um, or indeed social at all. But it is there is a seriousness where people are actually going to art to look at art that's good to hear um give us a sense of the kind of scope of the shows that you're seeing because obviously this time of year normally again because the collectors are all here because museum directors coming in from all over the world this is the moment where the galleries choose to show their most high profile artists their most ambitious shows do you get the sense that that's the case this year as well I think they're certainly rescheduled to kind of coincide with an art week in early October. Whether freeze was going to happen or not, when they when they decided to go ahead with these shows, they didn't know at the time. I mean, the atmosphere, who knows about the buying? But as I said, the looking is there. And I think, you know, people are actually falling upon the looking with great seriousness. I mean, there's a great Bruce Nauman show that's just opened at Tate Modern. I mean, Nauman is, of course, the artist's artist. He is such a genius. It's a great show. It's, it's partnered with Stedelijk in, in Amsterdam. 
I mean, I'd like it to have been the whole of, 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 of that floor of galleries. Of course, half of it's given over to Warhol, so that's not the case. But actually what's interesting is Nauman kind of haunts Tate. They very cleverly recalibrated it, partly for social distancing, but also, I think, to have Nauman very much within the body of Tate. So on the ground floor, there's Nauman's wonderful repetitive video of him washing his hands again and again. What could be more appropriate? Before you even enter the gallery, his voices piece, an, an adapted piece from his um, Turbine Hall uh, project, you hear strange disembodied voices echoing down the stairwell. Above the actual exhibition um, gallery entry itself is his great neon saying that the true artist um, helps the world by revealing mystic truths. Of course, that's sort of deeply ironic. And then in you walk into Nauman's studio, the great time-lapse piece of his studio with cameras um, scrutinising the space when he's absent from it. So you're immersed in the artist's studio. And of course, so much of Nauman's work is about what the hell does the artist do in the studio? What resources do they draw on? Their body, their immediate things that come to hand. Nauman is the most inventive artist. I mean, one phase in his work, for example, casting the space underneath his chair, is a whole career for the likes of Rachel Whiteread. So you've got this kind of protean feeling. You enter in the studio and then you go through this show with really wonderful installations, but also works that, in our febrile, insecure, beleaguered moments really do speak for the times. I mean, Nauman's work is so much about, you know, about duress, about cruelty, about humour, about the body. He casts his own hands in an early work. That takes on new resonance. There's that amazing um, installation, Anthrosocio, where you've got this bald-headed man, an actor, not Nauman, shouting, feed me, help me, eat me, burn me, projected round the walls, on monitors, and suddenly you're feeling this body this beleaguered body is here. So Nauman has taken on new resonance. It's a great show, and it's a great show for our times. He may be a white male, but boy, is he an important white male, and I'm very glad that Tate is showing him, and it is their big show for this moment. It sort of sets the tone in a way, doesn't it? You know, this, you know, a high watermark for the rest of the shows around around town. Well, well, yes. They would normally, of course, have the Turbine Hall project at this at this point, and they haven't. They've still very wisely got Clara Walker's Great Fountain there, so that has been put in, 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 in on the back burner. But then another great um, show that's just opened is Michael Clark at the Barbican, which you know is. He's been choreographer in residence uh, for the last 15 years and he's this great figure. I mean, yes, he's a dancer and a choreographer, but he's also brought together so many cultural forces. I mean, back in the 80s, he was bringing the world of ballet into the world of punk, clubbing, popular culture, LGBT or queer, as we called it then, culture, um, working with an amazing array of artists, all of whom are, are very much um, given the foreground in this, in this installation at the Barbican. I mean, you walk in and there's this, um, amalgamation of several um, Charles Atlas films about about um, Clark. It's a multi-screen installation, so you're immersed in the world of Clark, of him dancing, of him talking, of him socialising, the amazing music um, that's played, and that's 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 on the ground floor. Then you go up into these various sort of areas of different artists working working with Clark. Of course, you've already seen the great designer Lee Bowery, who gave so much of a look of of his of his work um, in the films, but you see the costumes, you see Sarah Lucas and him collaborating, so there's a great kind of crossover. And I would say that um, what's kind of nice is a moment where Lucas, as a room of devoted to Michael Clark, with which Lucas has made a giant sculpture of a sandwich like a plinth, upon which sits a cast of Clark's headless body sitting on a toilet. And of course out you go to Freeze Sculpture, one of the few bits of Freeze that's actually happening, and there is another version of this great sandwich, a cement sandwich in the, in the grounds of Regent's 
Queen's Park. So it's a nice cross-reference from the commercial freeze that does still exist in an analogue form and the institutional. That, that, that's right. So let's talk about free sculpture a bit. I mean, it, is it much the same? Is it, is it the sort of only bit of the fair effectively that, that's gone ahead as it normally would do? Well, yes, and out you go to Regent's Park and it's a great way, you know, you're socially distanced, provided you're not in a group of larger than six, and you can see some great sculptures. The Lucas Sandwich, as I said, is one of my favourites because it's so democratic, you can climb on it, it sits there, this instantly recognisable icon. Also, a great piece um, by... um, by Gavin Turk, large door. He likes a pun. It's a giant bronze open door, which is a great one for people to kind of play with, with and off, and the different kinds of spatial encounters with that. Also, doors are used in a great piece by Lubena Himid, which is um, five conversations where five reclaimed doors are painted with these great stylish women in vivid colours incorporated into the kind of form of the door, so that they're, they're kind of interconnecting with each other. There's also a great piece by Rebecca Warren, sort of totemic piece, Richard Long Stone Circle and a piece by an artist I didn't know London based, um, Calliope Lemos, a giant plait in steel, like a braid of a plait that becomes a huge column like a brancusi. So there you can actually interrelate with works you know, in the flesh, eyeball to eyeball and that's the part of Frieze that's, you know, absolutely as before but then Frieze has also sort of adapted itself, apart from going online of course, where you can go into endless viewing rooms, um, but it's gone to Cork Street and Cork Street of course back in the day when my day when I was when dinosaurs roamed the earth when I first started in the art world it was the epicentre for the art world um, Cork Street the contemporary art world then it all went a bit fallow and a bit quiet now it's being massively redeveloped a lot of the galleries have left but actually now people have come back into town including um, the Freeze Live which is in one of the one of the sort of um, modern uh, sort of refurbished ground floor spaces in, in Freeze and here it's been set up as the Institute of Melodic Healing. And there are various in- various installations by, for example, Anthea Hamilton, Hirun Mirza, Alvaro Barrington, which will be activated and live action will take place in Cork Street to a very small audience, but it will all be live streamed. So Freezer sort of popped into Cork Street, as of other galleries as well. Sadie Coles has a show there, um, also Listen Gallery um, and various others. So Cork Street has become kind of weirdly reanimated by Freeze with galleries putting almost like booths there. Stephen Friedman, also honourable mention, he's just round the corner in New Burlington Street uh, with a great show of, of Holly Hendry sculpture, but he's also got a, a pop-up in Cork Street of, of, of Denzel Forrester's enormous, dynamic, glorious paintings of his time in the British School in Rome in the 80s, where you've got sort of... He, he's known for doing these incredible scenes of dub reggae clubs, and here you've got it sort of taken to an old masterly incarnation from his time in Rome in the 80s. So Cork Street, come back to life thanks to Freeze. That's fantastic. Let's let's talk about um, Sarah Lucas's old Macadamian hearse because he's got a at his own gallery, Newport Street Gallery in Vauxhall. Um, he has he's showing a body of work from that first decade, which is I think broadly seen as his most successful decade. You know, artistically, you've been. What do you think? Well, it's called End of a Century. It seemed only a matter of time that Damien made this high-end, high-spec gallery that he'd, he'd, he'd created to, uh, for, as a receptacle for his own work. And it's 
actually, I mean, it might sound rather hubristic to do that, but there are some extraordinary works there. I mean, you can see the evolution of his spot paintings because there's early painted plates, painted pans, and then painted boxes from the from the from the eighties. Also, his his um, collages from really when he was before he was a student even, and when he was really starting out uh, in the early eighties. And so you've got the evolution of his work, and then you've got some great extraordinary pieces. I mean, there's there's a, a sliced shark which is a slightly earlier one. Many great spot paintings. Then there is the great, great piece. It's, it's, it's called A Hundred Years Rather Than A Thousand Years. It's another version. I mean, but it is, to my mind, the greatest Hearst piece, which is the, the vitrines full of living flies, which is a kind of fantastic memento mori, where they, they literally, they're born, there's a box full of their eggs, they're, they're, they're hatched, they're born, they swarm around, they feed on, on a cow's head and some sugar, and then they're killed in an insecticutor. But this vitrine is full of these repulsive buzzing dots of flies and is a sort of shortened life cycle it's a great piece there's also the enormous sculpture which sort of clarion calls the end of the 90s 1999 him the vast anatomical child's toy that he's blown up to colossal heights um, another very strange piece is a vitrine full of stuffed animals um faking an auction with a sort of teddy bear auctioneer and little paintings inside saying, you know, art's about life and not about money. But I mean, I would argue that actually it's probably um, interchangeable with him, but I'd never seen that piece before. So it is a kind of early retrospective of his early works and to my mind, the best works and seeing the evolution of these spot pieces, the spin paintings, the vitrines, all of which are there is a really interesting, interesting thing to behold. And it's for free as well. I wanted to talk about, I mean, you said you mentioned Hearst's paintings and, you know, his commitment to painting was pretty strong right from the start. But we we actually began this year on this podcast talking a lot about figurative painting. And it just occurred to me that there is actually quite a lot of figurative painting happening right now in London. So you've seen some of those shows, haven't you? Well, it's really interesting. And talking of Hearst, um, one of his absolute old muckers from Goldsmiths, Gary Hume, has a really, I think, wonderful show at Sprout Margers. It's called Archipelago Paintings. And it poses the problem of what does an artist who's a very formal, aesthetic um, painter do to respond to the current situation? And he's taken two strands of work. One is that he's taken images of schools, bombed schools. Just, I mean, when, when, when there's a scenario of some atrocity that's happened, in a war zone, whether it be Afghanistan, wherever it may be, Syria. Um, often you see these bombed out schools with terrible scenes of carnage. He takes all the horror out and he just reproduces the decimated school walls with happy children's paintings, happy decor in the background and abstracts it. And that's one strand. The other strand, the archipelago paintings, are based on the form of the life jacket, the outline, where you've got the sort of the, the over... The over um, over the shoulders and the sort of void for the neck and the head. And so that abstracted becomes a sort of biomorphic form, which becomes like a sort of an abstract element that he has in these paintings. Some of them, sometimes they're tangled together, sometimes they're more separately construed in these very beautiful aesthetic paintings. But of course, what they are are these images of horror, of loss of life. The life jacket has become something else altogether. You wouldn't know until you know what they are. But once you do see, he's also made a sculpture out of almost life-sized versions of them, um, 
um, cast in concrete that looks like a modernist sculpture, but it becomes this sort of tangled mass of loss of life and loss of hope. But he also points out that the void in the centre of the life jacket is a bit like the yoni, the kind of female symbol. So it can also be a kind of vacuum and a symbol of life. So these are very exquisite but very sombre works. And the child's um, paintings on the walls of the devastated schoolrooms are kind of cheerful but with a terrible, vacuous, scary feeling of, of, of empty, empty promise. So that's a really interesting series of work. Also, there's, um, there's works by Dana Schultz at Thomas Dane, big, lumpen, scary figures and creatures, um, these sort of humanoids that she paints, showing how the, the use of painting can still render electric emotion. I mean, she's, she's known for, the, for the causing the scandal at the Whitney, um, for the Emmett Till painting that she produced at the open casket body of, of, the, of the young boy who was lynched in the 60s. But this shows that she's a serious painter. This is not just about, you know, sensationist images. This is about really grappling with what paint can be made to say and do. And Christina Carls also at Pilar Caress produces strange abstracted bodily paintings showing the experience of inhabiting a body but rendering it in paint. So figurative painting, it's really interesting. I mean, maybe it's because there is a very strong strain in painting in contemporary art at the moment, as the recent Whitechapel show confirmed. Or maybe it's because dealers are thinking it's a safe bet. Paintings sell. Who knows? Thank you very much for rounding it all up for us, Louisa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, without the freeze fairs, how are galleries and auction houses responding to this moment? Melanie Gurlis is an editor-at-large at the Art Newspaper and the Art Market columnist at the Financial Times. I talked to her about how the art market's getting on. Melanie, the art world tends to have a certain rhythm through the year. We expect certain things to happen in certain months and it's been the same pretty much for a very long time. That is not happening right now, is it? It's all over the place. Uh, no, exactly. It's uh, it's chaos at the moment. You know, what we'd got used to are certain events at certain times and all that was happening were other events were being added. But, you know, your staple fairs and your staple auctions were always around the same time. Um I think it will settle because I, we're humans and we, we don't like chaos, but I, I don't think for a while. Um, there just always seem to be reasons to do things differently at the moment. So Christie's just held its auction at a different time because of the US elections. We've got Brexit coming, so heaven knows what happens to the February season in London. Uh, and then very significantly, of course, there's this virus. Um, I mean, I, I saw a gallerist this morning who said to me, please come to my opening on the on the 27th of October in London if we're open. So you can't, if we're not in lockdown, you can't even plan for a couple of weeks ahead. Um, so, yeah, I think it, the calendar is a complete mess. Um, but, you know, experiments are coming in left, right and centre. So it's, it's stressful, um, but it, it could be an opportunity. So basically this week, because we've got the Freeze Art Fair and everything else, the auction houses would have had their sales in London, right? But, of course, because of the circumstances, because of the pandemic, that hasn't happened. But And therefore, there have been auctions that have sort of been been global, essentially. Well, yes, what's happened is the New York auctions, which are meant to be in November, and only for one auction house. So this isn't even universal. I mean, this is what I mean by chaos. It's everyone doing their own thing. But the New York auctions are normally held in November. So Christie's held its auction this week instead because actually it's New York auction, which 
was hosted in New York, but was virtual. So it, it's just all a brave new world, as I keep saying. And you were involved in that in this sort of new sort of experimental format, weren't you? And I think it does. This is important because it does speak to the kind of ways because we are now in a situation where the event culture that normally surrounds auctions just isn't possible. So you were involved in a kind of experimental means to try and create a sort of more event like feel around this Christie's auction, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was kind of beamed to to Rockefeller Center in New York and sat next to someone who was in New York and we were sat with someone who was a hundred yards away from him, but it looked like we were all in the same room. Um and, and you're completely right. I mean events are fun. Um, but they also confer value, um, which is really important in this world. You know, the added value of owning art are the dinners and the parties and the private views, and, and people are trying to find ways to, to create that. Um, I honestly think it's impossible at the moment to replicate. I didn't think anyone has managed to. I mean, I had great fun working with Christie's um, in, an, in an alternative reality. Um, and I had people asking me, you know, are you, oh, wow, you're in New York. It's like, no, um, but, but I, I don't think great technology is, is yet uh, the, the magic bullet. Um, an auction, auction, in fact, works quite well as a TV show. I mean, they had something like 280,000 viewers over lots of platforms, but that's not the same as, as buyers. So I just, I just worry that to reinvent the wheel every time, auction everyone has to every fair we see online has to have some novelty value um to, to, to generate the sense of occasion um and this week yeah the most exciting thing wasn't me pretending to be in new york the most exciting thing was the auction of a 167 million year old dinosaur but i don't know if you can do that all the time <laughs> so yeah what you know the proof i guess is always going to be in the pudding how did the how did the actual auction do it was okay, Ben. I mean, I think, you know, to sell more than $300 million of art once the premium is added in a week that, you know, President Trump is in and out of hospital and we are in the middle of a virus, you know, it wasn't bad, but I think they probably would have wanted it to have gone a bit better. That's right. So they sort of reached low estimate, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thanks to a dinosaur. <laughs> so um let's talk about the dealers and the online viewing room so you know we've we've heard from louisa buck about what's on in london there is a dynamic series of exhibitions and everything else but it's interesting because we're used to in this week getting sales reports from galleries at the fairs and these are often you know with lots of seven figure maybe even more sums in them um there are sales reports emerging aren't there so, so tell, tell me what they're telling you yeah, I've just got a long list of sales. I mean, we're on day two, I think, of Freeze's uh, OVR, and I've got a long list of sales. I mean, Hauser and Worth said they sold $15 million worth on day one, um, including a Mark Bradford for $3.5 million, which is which is pretty high. Um, but, I mean, loads of galleries on this list. Uh, Tanya Benakta has sold Oliver Elias and Sarah Say, Analia Sabin, Gillian Waring from Maureen Paley at £80,000. Goodman Gallery have a Kentridge at $600,000. So it's, you know, the sales are coming in as, as ever they, they did in a way. It's just a question of really how, how the galleries are using these OVRs because it's not so different from a fair. You would always get day one sales, but a lot of them have been negotiated beforehand and so on and so forth. So... 
you'd get now something a, a little bit different, but the galleries are using the OVRs a bit like an advert uh, in, in a newspaper. They're paying, they're paying £4,900 to show and they're having to use it in a wise way. Right. But it's, it's, I mean, one of the things I was wondering about all this is, does it give you greater insight into some of that sort of behind the scenes stuff that's always the, the subject of speculation, as in, you know, how much of this is negotiated up front? To what extent is a, is a booth in a fair just a very, very advanced form of advertising? Or, you know, are real new sales made in the booths? And, to, and, and how many, you know, what proportion is actually sales and what proportion is sort of pre-negotiated, all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like you're getting any insight through the OVR and the fact that the fairs themselves aren't actually happening? I don't think I've got any more true insight, except uh, you pointed out to me, actually, David Zwerner put out a list of sales this week from three different channels. So from the Freeze OVR, from their own website, and from their gallery show. And that is interesting. I think that people are a little more honest about from where the sales are happening. Um, but that's as much to drive traffic to their own website, to be honest. Uh, but no, I think it's as much of a mystery. You know, I'm still told day one, OVR sales are this in the same way as I was told day one freeze sales are this. It's uh, it's not an acceleration, it's a continuation. And, and I've asked Louisa what the mood in the galleries she was visiting was like. What's the mood music from galleries, dealers that you've been speaking to, just about the health of the market? Well, dealers are always optimistic and I, I, I'm quite impressed by how optimistic they still are um, and how active people are but I think this is this week in London. I think there's a bit of a fear, I saw the, um, the art advisor Emily Singu earlier today and she says a bit of a fear going back to the calendar that, that we're all kind of busy 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 until the end of October and then it gets awfully quiet. There's almost nothing that is happening certainly not in the in Europe or the US um, and so people are really I think the fear is okay we're, we're ticking by we're okay we have our hybrid sales and galleries da, 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 da. but we we don't know what happens next and we haven't seen the worst of it yet right now curiously there has been an art fair happening this week and you've, you've been visiting it tell us it's the 154 art fair so tell us where is it and 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 what does it look like yeah it's it's always been in somerset house and it is in somerset house again and i think you know working with a place that knows how to function as an institution has probably helped it open it's only 29 galleries which is relatively small for an art fair but it's great to go it's great to see people it's amazing to see art I mean I found that I'm looking at I'm seeing textures and noticing layers in a way I never I probably never used to do because I'm so used to seeing things on a flat screen recently um I spent more than two hours there which again for 29 galleries is is it's almost the inverse of what you do on an OVR so yeah there's ticketed entry um face masks of course uh, and quite a convoluted one-way system, which is all fine. That's what they have to do. The only problem is if you've forgotten to ask someone something or take a photo of something, you have to go all the way around again. But it's fine. It's across two wings. They opened to VIPs at 10 o'clock this morning, uh, and it was busy. Anita Zabladovich was there, and everyone's quite galvanized to, to do their best and excited to see each other. Galleries are super happy to be there. Um, some of them, you know, there was a New York gallery who has a local contact in London who is fielding, 
manning the booth for them because they physically can't get here or they could, but a lot of people have quarantined for two weeks. Um, but yeah, everyone's pretty, pretty upbeat just, just to be here. You talk about this sort of galvanisation. We've heard about the galleries WhatsApp groups during the lockdown where they were all in touch with each other and helping each other and all that kind of stuff. Uh, is there a sense, you think, that the art market has somehow become more of a community through all this? Or is that just the sort of headline, what the galleries want us to think, I guess? I definitely think there's a spirit of collaboration because it's in everyone's interest that we all do well. I didn't think anyone, I didn't, you know, the bigger galleries might not want their immediate competitors to do as well as them, but they don't want people to fail right now. And you definitely don't want people lower down the food chain to fail because that's that's our future. Um, whether or not anything has yet worked from a, from a galvanizing point of view, I'm not sure yet. I think at the moment, everyone's sort of doing what they used to do online and a bit being a bit nicer to each other but I think watch this space I think there will be more things happening I think now we've realized this isn't a temporary blip we are going to see I think galleries in particular really finding ways to to come together and do something that makes money Melanie, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about it. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. Thank you. You can visit our Freeze Week microsite with the latest analysis and a guide to the key events at theartnewspaper.com. Linda Yablonski talks to Theasta Gates about his new transatlantic exhibitions in a moment. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The rumpus over the postponement of the Philip Guston exhibition in three US museums and the Tate in London continues to create headlines. The directors of the Tate and the National Gallery of Art in Washington have outlined their reasons for the postponement, as Gareth Harris writes. Kaywin Feldman, director of the National Gallery of Art, told the Hyperallergic podcast that it felt like this was a tough time in America to do this exhibition, particularly at this moment, stressing that the show cannot move forward with all-white curatorial teams. Meanwhile, the directors of the Tate added in a letter to the Times newspaper in London that proceeding would not have been possible for financial and logistical reasons. France's National Assembly voted on Tuesday to pass a bill returning 27 colonial-era artefacts from French museums to Benin and Senegal, as Anna Sampson writes. If enacted, the bill would compel France to return 26 works looted from Benin's royal palace, currently in the collection of the Musée du Quai Branly Jacques Chirac in Paris, and a sword would return permanently to Senegal from France's Musée de l'Armée. And finally, the latest postponement of an art fair. As Anna Brady writes, TAFAF in Maastricht will be delayed next year from mid-March until the end of May. TAFAF said in a statement that the move allows the global art community to more securely and safely come together in person at TAFAF and at the height of the European cultural season. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This October, Christie's will present Classic Week as a hybrid sales series with 10 live and online auctions of elegant and timeless pieces, ranging from a strong collection of Dutch landscapes and the enviable collection of decorative arts from Jane Reitzman to Roman marbles, a rare edition of Shakespeare's first folio and Louis Armstrong's trumpet. 
Alongside Classic Week, the Prince and Multiples department will offer an online-only sale dedicated to Francisco de Goya's Los Caprichos. Discover and bid on an array of extraordinary works that define form and standards of craftsmanship. Find out more on Christie's.com. Welcome back. Before we hear from Theaster Gates, don't forget to catch up with the art newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth artist interviews, and subscribe to hear new episodes in the coming weeks. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you're listening now. Now, Theaster Gates has two exhibitions opening this week in New York and London. The two related shows feature works across a range of materials, including brick reliefs, paintings using tar, large-scale works in glazed and fired clay, and a number of works from his Spine series, using bound volumes of the African-American magazines Ebony and Jet. Our contributing editor in New York, Linda Yablonski, spoke to Gates about the two shows and his ongoing community projects with his organisation, the Rebuild Foundation, based in his native Chicago. Let me just say that the, uh, for those who don't know, although I'm sure everyone does, Theaster has exhibited in cities all over this country, in Europe, in biennials, in galleries, in museums over the last 10 years. But this show, titled Vessel, is his first solo show in New York City. Simultaneously, somehow, through the magic of I don't know what, you're opening a show of related work the same day, this Saturday, the 10th of October, in London at White Cube Gallery. So this means at least people in New York and London both can see what you've been up to during the months of the pandemic shutdown, which seems to have been a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, six months of non-travel, that's like four years. That's four artist years. I mean, I've been to your studio in Chicago. I know how big it is, and I assume you have lots of assistants. But uh, for this show, for this material, you were all alone. Is that true? Yeah, well, the studio doesn't have lots of assistants uh, anymore. That model no longer works for me. During this time, we've had two builders working with me off-site. And, and I really mean it, that, that the six months that was preceded by three or four months uh, at the American Academy in Rome. And so that, that period of time of focused attention on a set of projects, I've not had that in this last decade. And so it meant, you know, if I, if I had all day to read, to say there were days you know, I could read for the whole day and the next day that uh, I could conceive of whole doctoral treaties uh, during that period. But it was just so nice to be in Rome and have a Roman day feel like three days, you know, um, and a, a day of research uh, really, really be a huge gift. And so I was able to come back to Chicago with pretty crystallized ideas that just needed to be executed and um, uh, lots of new kind of ripe convictions about what it means to be making, why making felt important to me and stuff. And and so the new tar paintings came out of that. Okay, so for the benefit of our listeners, let's talk about what exactly is in the show. There are different chapters that unfold as as one goes through the gallery, beginning with 
I don't know. You can tell me if they're the the newest works you've made or or made before the brick reliefs that are hanging on the wall in the front room of the gallery. Yeah. So the the, the brick works are new. The brick reliefs are new. Um, but the exploration in ceramics isn't new. Okay, so let's. Uh, I, I would like to go through this the way one sees the show, which is the be- beginning with one tar painting, and we'll explain that in a second. And these uh, wall reliefs, they're abstract works made of bricks. Is this the first time you worked with brick? Well, uh, no. In a way, the, the brick work has gone from, you know, making small brick installations that would appear, you know, on a pallet, strapped up, kind of brick as a formalized object, a minor Carl Andre, perhaps. And then they started to evolve um, from hand-making bricks at the studio to being involved in a, a production environment with a, a brick manufacturer in North Carolina where they were taking um, colored bricks that they weren't going to use and they were taking all of that, that colored clay material, putting it in a hopper, adding additional um, manganese dioxide and black stain, which would make the bricks black, mixing that to extrude kind of my new black brick. And so in some ways, the brick work is, is a direct engagement with like an industrial reclamation as much as it is taking on the, the, my interest and investment in building as a way of reclaiming a space and restoring a space. So in this case, uh, Gagosian didn't need a brick situation, but I thought when you enter the space, having these brick sculptures function as sculptures and maybe it's just the material clay, you don't know that it's a brick. It doesn't function like a brick on the wall. That it felt like the right uh, introduction to the rest of the exhibition. They struck me. I mean, they're, they're each one of these is a different arrangement. Some of which they have a texture, as well as a, a patina or a glaze. But they almost look like you've worked them by hand, as you would with clay. I don't know how you got those effects, but. It also reminded me or made me think of, they were like mini land art projects because <laughs> they look like something you'd see from the air, <laughs> you know, flying over a piece of land and there's suddenly this structure. Yeah, I had a lot of fun trying to imagine the highest sculptural use for the lowest sculptural material. And, and so in that way, you know that they're bricks, but in fact, it's just clay. A clay made into a square becomes a, potentially a modular material. But for me, it's really like, oh, how can I take this material and and encourage encourage it to do new things or demonstrate that it's actually as important a material to contend with as any other material that would be in a in a conventional art. Uh, uh, situation. The brick can win. Hanging with these works is one uh, tar painting, what you call tar paintings, and tar is one of the materials you've been working with for a long time. Your somewhat autobiographical reference to 
your father, who was a roofer. And so I've seen some of your previous tar paintings, which were a different scale and a completely different gesture, it seems to me. And these are painted, uh, have a pigment, enamel paint on them, as well as, well, they're tar paper, or what, not tar paper, a torch down, you call it? It feels necessary to kind of describe the the evolution of roofing. Um, maybe in the in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, uh, people used uh, an asphalt paper, so mm. they would mop the roof with a uh, hot tar, hot hot bitumen, and then they would lay out uh, an asphalt kind of paper. Then they would tar over that paper overlapping the paper, then you would tar the entire roof after that, and it would be like putting shellac on top of a hardwood floor or something. Over time, the building industry started to use a rubber material that was thicker, and it was backed by tar, so that people would then take a torch, torch the back of the, the roof, the rubber material to activate the tar, and then lay that material. So it was a it was a, a thicker material that was much more consistent and kind of kept the water out better. But over about you know the last five years, I've been trying to play with this material, like how do I use this torch down, and realize that I could uh, paint it and then treat the material uh, as a kind of collage material and use my torch as a kind of adhesion device. And then we started playing again with older roofing material, torching it, heating it, pulling those parts apart, putting them back together, and then assembling essentially new painting with these uh, old roofing materials. The vessel themselves, the ceramic works, you started, well, I would say you started in life uh, singing in the in the choir at your church, but pottery is what you went to school for. So working with clay was the first thing you did as an artist, but you also, and you also studied in Japan. The works in this show have references to West African sculpture as well. And you also studied urban planning simultaneously with the pot, pot making. Yeah, planning planning was the main thing, and clay was like the little side thing. Uh, I'm I minored in in studio art, but it it feels important though to to at least mention urban planning. And if we were to take the disciplinary title away, we would just be left with a person who studied the formation of cities and the management of cities, and the management of cities through governance and administration, whether that administration is public administration or private administration, like development corporations and councils of planning, or departments of labor, streets and sanitation. And the value of, of studying urban planning then is that you become a little bit of a kind of poet of the construction of cities. The city feels like a form that's malleable, but it's also you're operating at a level of administration that's hundreds of millions of dollars a year in order to keep the city working. And so what happens when you give a potter 
good administrative skills to be poetically reflective on the city, then the potter wants to brick rooms. The potter wants to build quarries. The potter wants to create wealth for the poor. You, you deploy those administrative skills that help you poetically reimagine the city. You can, you can deploy those skills in super pragmatic ways. Well, let's talk about the pragmatic ways you've done that with the Rebuild Foundation, where you have taken derelict houses on the south side of Chicago, a neighborhood that is and beautiful. Absolutely <laughs> impeccable, filled with joy and kindness and resilience and beauty. Well, I think you've brought that out with the houses that you've bought, renovated, and repurposed for the community with your other uh, activity, which is collecting or uh, collections. Uh, you bought the contents of a Dr. Wax, a record store that had gone out of business, uh, a bookstore filled with books relating to architecture and turned them into kind of libraries accessible to the public. Most spectacularly, there's the Stony Island Arts Bank, which uh, I visited once and have never stopped thinking about because it's amazing. It, it is a library, it's a reference center and it's alive, and it has an exhibition space, and it's uh, fascinating to look at the material there. Some of this has entered into the show I saw at Gagosian in this tower of books uh, of bound volumes of, well, I, you bought the, uh, the print run of the magazines from the Johnson Publishing Company of Jet. And I also started hunting for Ebony and Jet magazines all over the, the world. I started buying out inventories in Atlanta. I became obsessive. I became a collector. I mean, I, I wish I could have afforded like three or four of Njedeka Crosby's paintings, but you know, I, I just kind of took the things that were around me. I, I want to just say on record that Rebuild, which I'm extremely excited and proud of, has done a lot of things, but I don't want to. I don't want to neglect the fact that my studio. We buy buildings. We buy buildings so that we could use them. So that when there are interns in the summer, there's a place to stay. So that if we, if we were to have a good drink and a person needs to like crash, they don't have to crash in my bed. They can crash next door. Um, we buy buildings to to demonstrate that black wealth is willing to invest in a black neighborhood while it's black. And that, and that black wealth isn't just in a hedge fund investing in white space. And that artists are more likely to take more risks than most other people in betting on a neighborhood because artists are constantly creating accrued value for themselves. Not just financial value. I'm talking about Understanding how a building has value beyond the ability to buy it and sell it and flip it. But a, a building has inherent value um, because it means that I can do more of the things that I love. or I can store more of the things that I love or I could care for more of the people who I love. So, so I wanted to say 
Rebuild and the studio have been actively restoring buildings. And in some cases, restoring them, not just for some kind of grand mission statement, you know, that you can put on a logo or and get people to sympathetically give money. We're restoring them because the, the spaces are beautiful. And I have a fetish. I have a fetish for beautiful space, empty space, non-productive space, holy, holy space. I don't want the work to be perceived as a missionary project. The work is actually space theory. This is, this is Calvino. This is Lefebvre. It's very obvious when you even, you not even have to be in these spaces, even just reading about them or looking at images of them, is that you come to this urban planning, let's say, this reclamation project, and you're reclaiming not just spaces or archives, but also creating or maintaining layers of history of that community and that era that would otherwise be lost and that are so important just as a human connection that you come to this science of urban planning as an artist, as you were saying, as a poet. And it is really different, different than what, you know, an administrator would do or a politician or an economist. Well, Linda, this point you're making is actually quite important to me. That when we when we talk about the challenges that black communities have around black and brown communities around the world, uh, but but particularly in the the United States, if you go back and you look at all of the systematic undoing that happened, FBI scandals of them infiltrating black organizations pitting people against each other, assassination, crack, the influx of uh, military weapons in poor black places and their availability at very little cost. If you, if you were to take all of the phenomena of that, I would say what actually happened was a kind of deep spiritual erosion so that the family gets jacked up, you don't have the church anymore. The archdiocese is jacked. You know, all of the, the, the social infrastructure that would have caught little Bobby and spanked him on his butt and then sent him home to mom and mom would spank him on his butt and, and Bobby wouldn't do it again. All of that social infrastructure is gone. And at the same time, people are saying, ah, oh, this nuclear family shit is a thing of the past. Oh, God is dead. Who needs it? Oh, you know, this is a land. Who needs to eat at, at home anymore? This is stupid. You know, hang out with your... And, 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 and what you end up with is a seemingly sophisticated secular environment, uh, but an environment where th that all of, the, all of the netted work is unnetted. And so part of the project, to me, has to be lacing back the emotional and social and spiritual webs, even in advance of sometimes new construction. So it's like, can we have a place where we just eat together or read together or just be together? And that, and that if, you can, if you can make those kinds of spaces, I actually think that it does more than people give it credit for. 
you know, if someone asked me, do you think your projects are making impact? It doesn't matter. Because if you're only gauging impact by bricks and mortar, it doesn't matter. But do I think that people want to be around each other more and longer in black space as a result of the spaces that I build? Yes. Then a person who would never consider living where I live could then say, I can see myself here. And what makes them want to say that is something that's invisible. It's not something visible. And so the work at Gagosian is also trying to get at that invisible energy that is present when, when cool, visible things happen. Talking about the communal experience and nuclear families, you grew up in a family with nine children. You're the youngest and you're the only boy. And I would like to ask you if having eight sisters, older sisters, in any way contributed to this worldview that you have. Well, I mean, maybe it's, maybe that, that very thing reinforces my point that we all live together in this uh, four-unit apartment building that my parents owned. And my older sisters had their own apartments, you know. But part of my survival was that building. And then, and then another part of my wiring was these, these nine or ten personalities that were hardwiring me to, to love to be kind, to respect women, you know, to want to be better. And so I think that, that this idea that there was, the, there was the, the proximity that the architecture gave us, then there was the kind of emotional richness um, that my sisters gave. Yeah, that makes you maybe preoccupied with things that other people aren't preoccupied with. I would like to ask uh, the, this uh, tower of books, the, the bound volumes of the magazines which are in a wooden structure uh, with the spines on the inside and you can enter it. Uh, and so the outside, the shelves are open and I couldn't help it. I took one down and looked through it, <laughs> uh, which I'm not sure visitors to the gallery can do, but it, it was a little like being back in the Stony Island Arts Bank and looking through the books there. You know, I'm a white American, uh, from the north and I grew up reading lots of magazines and I remember being aware of Jet and Ebony but I don't know that I'd ever actually seen one and there was this parallel history of America in the mid-century America that was that I didn't know anything about I didn't know those people I didn't know those places I didn't know those activities it was fascinating and also it made me feel small because there was so much I didn't know and yet coexisted with what I did know and a whole culture I didn't know about even that was beyond music and books. It was, you know, the snapshot of life. Yeah, I mean, it's reasonable to say that blackness is a parallel universe for some. Uh, I, I would also say that in, in this case, uh, the kind of cultural specificity that the, the piece is called New Egypt, that New Egypt offers, it's intended to function like a, a kind of holy grail of the Black American experience. You know, the floor of, the floor of uh, New Egypt is um, the, the altar center from St. Lawrence Church. 
And maybe in my mind, the warfare that uh, Europeans have been lauded for um, as, as Rome conquered other parts of the world, so much of that warfare included the dismantling, the burning, the pillaging of people's libraries and the assassination of their scholars and the kind of dismantling of millennia, generations of, of intelligence so that a people wouldn't even know the tremendous legacy that they are inherent of, you know? And so I think that in some ways, these two works, one New Egypt and then the other kind of the spine works, Walking Prayer, they're trying to talk to each other about, in this case, Carnegie's desire to see the everyday person have access to reading and literature and knowledge by, by setting up these libraries all over the country and, and in fact, other parts of the world, kind of the monopolist's commitment to pedagogy and, and education. And then the other truth that so much of the world's knowledge has been pillaged um, uh, through warfare and the spoils of war uh, so that uh, people who have had ex extreme knowledge might forget it in a generation. And so I think th this commitment to building libraries, it feels like, um, it also feels like kind of intellectual impulse, no, e emotional, spiritual impulse of a, a person with a pathology that like, I'd like to imagine uh, that I had the ability to rebuild the black nation, that I would be a small, a small part of that, but, but the task should no less be an ambitious task. What, what is in the show in London? London is, is, is more specifically about how I respond to the Johnson Publishing Company with new works. So um, this, this carpet remnant that is from the original uh, Johnson Publishing Company building becomes the launching pad for a body of new spine works. There's a tribute to Joseph Albers with a series of works called Homage to the Square, which Albers was deeply invested in. And in, in, in a way, it was a way of playing out his color theories through squares. And so I take on Johnson Publishing's kind of black modernist color uh, strategies with the Joseph Albers uh, square in mind. It's, so it's a text heavy exhibition, but it, it's one that I'm really proud of. And the fact that these things are both manifesting at the same time, I almost wish they were both in a museum that people could get to, or I wish the galleries could even maybe talk more so that people recognize the two shows as a kind of continuum. Thank you, Theaster. Thank you so much.
The Astor Gates is Exhibition Black Vessel is at Gagosian at 555 West 24th Street, New York, from the 10th of October to the 19th of December. His exhibition Sweet Square of Dark Abyss is at White Cube Online and Freeze Online until the 16th of October. And you can see the works in Sweet Square of Dark Abyss in real life at White Cube Bermans's viewing room. Note, you need to book an appointment. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Also at the top right of the page you can find a link to subscribe to our various newsletters. And please subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already. Do give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Louisa, Melanie, Linda and Theaster, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.